Find the answers to questions you may or may not have asked yourself here at Kaleidoscience, Conversations on Cognitive Science, hosted by Elisa Palmer and Sönke Löw. I often cannot remember my dreams, but when I do, they usually are somehow responding to things that have happened in my everyday life or in the past. In general, it is thought that dreams play an important role in processing things that happen in our wake life. However, I personally often rather remember confusing or stirring dreams rather than pleasant ones. To dive more into the topic, we have, as always, invited an expert on this field. We like to welcome Jonah Lemke. Um, you wrote your bachelor thesis on emotion regulation during dreams. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. <laughs> And as always, we want to play a short get-to-know game to introduce our guests to our, all our listeners and to kind of get a feeling of what kind of person you are. In this game, we give you the, the beginning of five different sentences and we ask you to finish those sentences. Mm -hmm. Are you ready for it? I'm ready. <laughs> Perfect. Okay, the first sentence is, as a kid, I always wanted to be. Ooh, um... I wanted to be an author, I think. Did that change over time? or? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, then after some time, I realized that I, like, I don't want to writing to be my profession because um, it's difficult. It's a difficult career and I don't want to sort of um, have this hobby or passion of mine um, turn into something professional. Um, I want to preserve it as, as a hobby or something I enjoy. Yeah, and I think it can be really challenging to do that when you have to get money out of it, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> If I was an emoji, I would be. <laughs> um, ooh, um, I would be the one um, who's smiling a bit and has like this angel halo over it. <laughs> I really <laughs> like that one. <laughs> mm. My favorite thing to do on a day off is? Um, reading, uh, listening to music, going for a walk. Um, yeah, these kind of things. Also playing computer games sometimes. Sounds good. <laughs> um, right now, I'm most fascinated by. Ooh, um, I'm recently um, really fascinated by um, GeoGuessr, <laughs> um, a browser game where you have to guess your um, location um, on Google Street View um, based on. Yeah, the Google Street View images you see. Um, and somehow I got really into this because I find it a fascinating concept to like, uh, <laughs> yeah, find out what location on the world it is and how different places of the world look like. Yeah, I can imagine that's quite challenging because I would consider that some regions of the world look quite similar while others, mm -hmm. um, or like, are really different to other regions, but yeah. in itself look quite similar when you are in one different or in one specific part of the world. Yeah, and it's also, yeah, it's just really fascinating how different 
climate zones also look like or how the south of South America after some time looks like Norway a bit because there are also mountains and you know if you like go more towards the South Pole um, the climate becomes cooler again yeah. <laughs> and um, so yeah it's um, yeah it's really fascinating to me <laughs> I can imagine um, I know it's time to call it a day when um, when I'm noticing that I'm just getting really tired and fatigued I guess and for example when I'm like working on something and I just I don't know I'm sitting like five minutes on one sentence and or I read and I have to read the same uh, sentence or passage over and over again <laughs> because I cannot concentrate anymore mm. so in a way when the brain stops working yeah <laughs> <laughs> exactly so now we have a bit of an idea of who you are and from your scientific um, side, you have done your bachelor's thesis at the University of Osnabrück. Um, what were your main fields of interest during your bachelor's? Um, during my bachelor's, um, things have changed actually because um, earlier in my studies I was more um, uh, focusing on philosophy courses, um, philosophy seminars. Um, um, but then, yeah, I have done different, like I have focused on different things. I did my oral exam in neuroinformatics, so for some time I got really into that to um, prepare for that exam again. Um, but mostly it has been neuropsychology and philosophy. And um, yeah, also like for quite some time then sleep and dream research. And I finally wrote my bachelor thesis also about Uh, this field of um, cognitive science. Mm -hmm. mm, is dream or sleep research something you want to do afterwards or do you have different plans for after your bachelor's? I can uh, I can imagine um, to follow that more during my further um, life after this bachelor's. Um, yeah, because I want to do my master in um, cognitive affective neuroscience so also like a neuroscience, neuropsychology master. And um, I would say I'm not like hyper-focused on this field of research. I don't like, I don't want to pursue this research at all costs or something later. Um, but I would really like to um, do more research in that field. Yeah. Interesting. We have heard that you uh, did a lot of sleep and dream seminars during your bachelor's year um, and you also wrote your bachelor thesis in that direction uh, but I'm assuming like the research field is quite vast um, so you have a particular interest in the emotional side of the sleep or how did you come up with your topic and maybe can you give a brief overview what the topic was about sure <clears throat> um, yeah you're right um, Sleep and dream research is quite a vast field and um, I learned that especially sleep sleep is better research than dreams. And um, yes, like dreams have um, always like fascinated me more um, in this field. Um, and uh, for example, in one um, 
course, Introduction to Sleep and Dreams, I did a presentation about the function of dreams. And I found that really fascinating uh, to get into that. And um, so, yes, then I approached, um, so the topic of my thesis um, was not something I came up with straight away, but I just approached uh, my supervisor uh, who was also teaching that course I just mentioned and who's really um, into sleep and dream research at our university. So Katharina Lüth, she's also a leading or one of the leading persons of the sleep and dream student initiative of cognitive science. And um, so I just wrote her an email and said, hey, I would really like to write my bachelor thesis in some sleep and dream uh, related research. And more specifically, I could uh, imagine doing something on naps um, because I also really like naps and I'm like uh, fascinated how little time of sleeping can have really uh, huge benefits for you. And also it's easier to do a nap study than um, a full night of sleep study. Yeah, and uh, so I also said I want to do something practical. If possible, I want to conduct an experiment. And um, then she said, yeah, sure, um, perfect. And then we talked about it. And then she came up with the specific topic of emotion regulation, um, theory of dreams and dreaming, and um, told me yeah, her, her research idea that she would really like to um, try to confirm how dreaming and dream content specifically can have um, a benefit in emotion regulation. And so, yeah, we kind, we kind of came up with the idea together. And, um, yeah, so the uh, more narrow topic of my bachelor thesis is emotion regulation um, of dreams during a nap. So um, during a two-hour nap opportunity, um, yes. Um, when you said nap, I first thought about like power naps, which would for me last about 15 to 30 minutes. Um, you now said that the nap in your experiment lasted for two hours. Why, why did you decide to do such a long episode of sleeping? Yeah, um, you're right. So like um, a, a nap is technically considered to be only um, up to 30 minutes. Um, we mainly uh, did such a long um, period because we wanted uh, to investigate dreams and um, we know that uh, another person of the Sleep and Dream Initiative, they, they conducted a nap study with only 20 minutes of sleep and in this study no one reached uh, deeper phases of sleep and no one had REM sleep. So... Um, yeah, because especially in, in like a laboratory environment, it often takes a long time for people to fall asleep. Mm -hmm. And we specifically wanted them to dream. Yes. <laughs> and um, so, yeah. And also like the other studies I read for my research, they mainly uh, all had 90 minutes at least, mm -hmm. 90 to 100, 120 minutes of sleep. So we adapted that. You already quite jumped a bit into um, sleep terms. So you just mentioned uh, REM sleep, for example. Yeah. Um, and also other sleep stages. So could you maybe just shortly explain or explain us uh, how sleep usually looks like? So we have different sleep stages. 
what sleep stages do we have and, and how far or which one is the most interesting for dreaming especially? Mm -hmm. um, yes, there are different sleep stages. Um, so um, we have uh, mainly three uh, sleep stages and one and two and, and three. Um, formerly there had been a fourth and four, but um, it got reduced to N3 some time ago, and we have REM sleep. So um, N1 is the lightest stage of sleep. Um, it's also when you fall asleep and are still kind of conscious. N2 um, is when you're already sleeping, and N3 is deep sleep. So it's the deepest stage, and it's really like... Um, Yeah, you're really off. And if someone awakes you in that stage, it feels really uncomfortable because mm -hmm. um, you have to take some time to get like awake again. And then we have REM sleep, which is also a really light stage of sleep. So it's like also brain-wise really close to being awake. Mm -hmm. um, and it's called REM the, um, because um, it's an abbreviation for rapid eye movement. And in the sleep stage, um, yeah, the sleep stage is particularly ca characterized um, by really fast movements of the eye that last for a few seconds. Um, and you can see that, so the eyes are closed of the people sleeping, but you can see their eyes moving really fast mm -hmm. from left to right. And that is um, the sleep stage where that is like traditionally associated with dreaming. Dreaming can happen in all sleep stages, but most of the dreams happen in REM sleep. And also REM sleep dreams are the dreams we usually remember that are really emotional, vivid, uh, in nature, that have like a story that is told or um, something. And um, we also remember these dreams better than the deeper sleep stage dreams. Um, because uh, REM sleep is the sleep phase that is like that you are in uh, just before you awake. So mm -hmm. usually you wake like if you awake naturally, you wake up from REM sleep, and then uh, you just had a dream, and um, you can remember that dream best uh, because it's it just happened, and yes. usually you have a difficult time remembering uh, dreams that happened a few hours ago mm. during sleep. And during sleep, do we go do, uh, through one of those cycles of N1 to N3 and then REM, or do we have multiple cycles? Yeah, during one night of sleep, you go through multiple cycles. So, um, yeah, exactly. You uh, go from N1 to N2 to N3 and um, then back again to REM. And um, so REM is always at the end of a sleep uh, cycle. And these cycles uh, last about one and a half hours. Mm -hmm. It's a bit different from person to person, but this is the average. And depending on how long you sleep, <laughs> um, you go through multiple cycles. So, for example, if you sleep um, seven and a half hours, you have um, four mm -hmm. <laughs> of these um, cycles. Okay, yeah. Yeah. You mentioned that um, dreams during REM sleep are especially loaded with emotions. Is there maybe, or are there several theories on why we dream at all? Or are there, is there a definitive answer to that? Do you know that? Um, no, there's not a definitive answer to that. There are many theories why we dream. 
Um, in fact, um, like uh, Katharina Lüth, my supervisor, also offers a seminar now that is just called Why We Dream. <laughs> so um, that alone suggested that they're really different um, theories and it's not clear uh, which one is um, true. It is generally, um, dreams are generally considered to help help us um, with emotional processing, um, with, yeah, so with dealing with our emotions, um, with uh, coming up with new ideas and perspectives on our waking life. Um, but scientifically, it's really not researched that well. Um, there are also theories saying that um, dreaming prepares us for a waking life in the form that, um, for example, there's the social simulation theory that suggests that um, dreaming um, prepares us for our social life in the wake by simulating different social situations. Um, there's also the threat simulation theory, it's called, I think, that says like a similar thing, but with threats, um, so that during dreams we practice dealing <laughs> with threatening situations so that we can adapt better in wake. Um, but um, yeah, ultimately there are many theories and um, there's definitely more research to be done because we actually don't know so much about the function of dreams and it has been a mystery for a long time and there's also many um, researchers who argue like, oh well, if dreams are so important, why do so many people forget them? There are also people who never remember their dreams, so what good does it to them? And then it's also unclear if dreaming um, benefits us all because actually every person dreams, also the ones that um, don't remember their dreams. So it's also unclear um, if they also benefit from dreaming if they can't remember their dreams. So if like the process of dreaming alone mm -hmm. is helpful or if you have to remember them. And yeah, so there are a lot of open questions. Um, I've heard that one of the theories why we dream is to process emotions. That's yeah. also what you try to find out in your bachelor's thesis. Um, what's the state of research on the question of emotion regulation and dreams? Um, the state of research is um, not uh, that far. Um, I like doing the research uh, for my bachelor thesis. I got the impression that there are like um, two sides of dream research. One that is more psychologically, so like by psychology researchers that deal with the content of dreams, and the other one is more neuroscientific. If you can um, say so, like more by neurobiologists or neuroscientists who uh, look more at the EEG correlates, mm -hmm. for example, so like the um, EEG um, signature that is present in our uh, brain while we dream. And I think that's also maybe um, a shortcoming of dream research that, yeah, dreams are approached in very different ways. And... Um, Yeah, in fact, I only mainly found one researcher who um, really did longitudinal um, studies on emotion, emotional processing and emotion regulation of dreams, Rosalind Cartwright, and she already did 
these studies um, like quite some time ago in the end of the 80s, um, I think. And um, so she really looked at people who um, had depression and um, how dreaming offers stressors. So she did like uh, studies with people going through a divorce and she looked at how um, dreaming of the ex-spouse or the person you are divorcing from um, helps you adapt in the long term. So she did a checkup um, after one year. Um, and yeah, she could show that um, people who dreamt of the stressor of their ex um, really were better off and had significantly uh, less depression after one year. Um, but she was really the only person I found who did this kind of research and others um, did more like very short-term um, research uh, so studies that only lasted one night, typically, and um, yeah, very few looked at dream content, and yeah. Mm -hmm. mm, I think it, like, I imagine that it can also be hard to really estimate in how far people dreamt of the um, X in this example, because when a person can't remember their dreams that well, you, well, when you can ask them, did you dream of your ex, but they can't really answer that properly because if they don't remember, they wouldn't say, yes, of course I did. They would just be like, I don't know, I guess. Um, did she only include individuals that remembered their dreams but were not dreaming of the ex? Um, but, but, or did she also um, include people who just did not remember their dreams? Do you know that? I think she did include people who did not remember their dreams. Um, but... Yeah, exactly. That's like the difficult question I also mentioned before um, that you don't really know if people also benefited um, if they don't um, if they don't dream or can't remember their dreams. Um, sorry, <laughs> <laughs> um, my question was um, my question was if you are aware if she kind of differentiated between people who remember their dreams but did not dream of the ex or and people who could not remember their dreams at all? Um, I think she um, did differ yes she definitely included people who dreamt but didn't dream of their ex mm -hmm. um, and yeah I think she included all these groups for analysis yeah. Are there any tools that a researcher could use like to help the participants to remember the dreams? Is there like um, special tactics or strategies that you can apply in order to make sure that most of your participants are able to recall the dreams? Um, yes. So um, the main um, technique for remembering your dreams or helping uh, dream recall um, is uh, practicing uh, writing down your dreams or recording them after you wake up. Um, so kind of dream journaling. Um, yeah, it doesn't have to be on paper. As I said, you can also record your um, your dreams um, via audio. Um, and if you uh, practice that, the success rates are really high. So if you try to do that every day or at the beginning, every time you remember something of your dream, um, 
your dream recall will really um, improve over the next um, days and weeks. It may take some time, of course, but that is a really efficient way to help you um, yeah, remember your dreams better. Otherwise, like um, if you're in the situation that you're a sleep researcher and you want your participants to remember the dreams well, there are not so many things you can do, I guess, but there are certain details. For example, if you wake up your participants uh, more um, fast and like abrupt, <laughs> um, they will remember their dreams better. Or if you um, come in and have an audio recording device ready and ask, what did you dream? Um, yeah, people can just start to talk right away. And if they have to write it down, you know, um, it's like not as fast. So probably um, you will forget some things while you write it down. And if you talk, that's a quicker way of recording. So yeah, there are like certain um, details you can change in the recording of the dream. Um, yeah. Do people usually rather remember um, pleasant dreams or unpleasant dreams? Unpleasant dreams are generally remembered a bit better and there are also many researchers who suggest that in fact we do um, dream with negative emotions or have like somehow negative um, dreams more often than positive ones. Um, so that is also maybe a hint that uh, dreaming is so important in emotional processing mm -hmm. because we yeah tend to reflect on negative things that happen to us or um, yeah negative emotions we are feeling right now in our dreams. Um, so yeah, and also the emotional intensity um, of the dream also predicts dream recall. So like the more emotionally intense and also the more um, the, this emotion is like connected to you or this dream content is relevant to you personally, the better you will remember your dream. So in a way, importance um, strengthens recall. Yes, definitely. We talked about a bit about uh, the emotional processing side, but uh, is there any measurement? Uh, so how do researchers find out if we do like emotional processing? How do we really uh, measure that? You already hinted at that study with, their, with the people who were going through a divorce, but um, what is like maybe a more short-term way of measuring uh, the emotional effects of dreaming? Um, <clears throat> yeah, there are different... Um Uh, measurements you can do. Um, some researchers also use physiological measurements. Um, What would those be, for example? Um, well, actually, it's these would be um, like a skin conductance rate or um, heart deceleration. But actually, these are uh, <laughs> these are not like um, immediately connected to dreams, um, but rather. Um, to, for example, I, I read a lot of research about um, people seeing negative stimuli, so negative pictures, for example, that's also what we did in our study, before and after sleep. And then uh, you can use these physiological measurements to um, measure the emotional reaction while the people see the mm -hmm. stimuli, the pictures, for example. Um, and you do that before and after sleep or dreaming. 
but in the sense it's not physiologically immediately connected to or like happening during the dreaming um otherwise you can of course um uh, record the dreams and then like um analyze the dream content and um in this way see how like what emotions were present um in the dream reported um or yeah, yeah what the content was and you can um kind of analyze um this for emotional processing for example the researcher i mentioned before who was doing the divorce studies took like uh so had like her participants write down current concerns uh, like i don't know financial concerns um yeah like uh, different things that um occupy you in your waking life um of course related to your ex-spouse um in this uh, example and then you can um analyze the dream and um look at how like for example how many times did the ex appear in the dream what concerns appeared in the dream as well and um then you can like draw connections to the waking life of the person mm-hmm. mm. When we talk about our dreams, especially when it's, well, I think when it's clearly connected to something that has happened, so for example, dreaming of the ex-partner, um, it's well quite obvious, obvious that it reveals something about ourselves in a way. Um, is that also the case when we dream of things that are more abstract or kind of, is there any research on in how far our dreams might also reveal us information about what our underlying um, or what our unconscious parts are dealing with? Good question. <laughs> I don't actually know if um, there's research really looking at um, this, but it would be really interesting. Um, would also maybe be hard because how, <laughs> how do you... Um, specify the abstract mm-hmm. <laughs> um what i can um say for example what i also found interesting was that um uh, rosalind cartwright again like the person doing the divorce studies also um looked at uh, in one study looked at what context uh, the dream content has so how um the x for example is connected to other memories or mm-hmm. other yeah like um stuff that is going on in your life and um she also took that as a measure how well your um trauma or difficulty you're dealing with is like wo- woven in sort of in into um your um other memory or how your broader <laughs> network and i found that also really interesting because in fact like the better um the specific stressor was like um connected to other parts of your memory network um the better you also uh, were off later so the better the remission from depression was mm-hmm. mm, that sounds a bit like um the whole dreaming and emotion regulation is also connected to memory and yeah. how far is that the case Yeah, that is definitely um, the case. Um, so 
Yeah, many researchers um, point out that um, a key function of streaming actually may be uh, connecting recent events with older events of our memory, uh, because we all know that when we dream, um, memories from really far um, behind, <laughs> from years ago, can mm. pop up suddenly. Places that we haven't seen for years can pop up, and um, so yeah, just like sleeping, for uh, also um, is helping you learn and helping you um, integrate stuff that you recently learned better in your whole um, network of things you know. Um, dreaming may be um, necessary to connect things that you recently dealt with or experienced better in your yeah, more broad network of, of memories and things you already have experienced. And um, actually also neuroscience supports that uh, thesis because um, when we dream also like more distant memory networks can communicate or do communicate. And how can they see <laughs> or how do they know that they communicate? Um, well, that is uh, like the, I think they uh, measured that with EEG. Mm -hmm. um, so the theta oscillations of EEG, so that's a specific EEG um, signature. I, I don't know exactly how they measured that, but I guess with like fMRI or some image, uh, like image-related measurement, mm -hmm. they showed that, um, yeah, like parts of your brain which are um, somehow further apart or memory networks that are not immediately connected or usually not communicating during wake do communicate, mm -hmm. uh, do, yeah, are active during dreams. Just yeah. a quick um, information maybe, like, if people listen and they don't know what EEG and yeah. fMRI is, so that's basically um, the way I understand it is uh, the, an imaging technique to measure like the activity in a certain brain region. And then we have um, certain brain regions uh, associated with certain functions. And so we can maybe from those images uh, conclude some, uh, some information about the person's consciousness or mental state. Um, yeah, and in, in EG, for example, you measure the electrical um, signals your neurons fire, and in fMRI, you measure the magnetic um, activation in certain brain regions. And in EG, you get kind of, it looks a bit like when you, or it looks like lots of ups and downs, so you also mentioned theta waves, um, which are one of the, I think, five, are there five different wave brain waves? Yeah, I think so. Like alpha, beta, gamma, delta, theta. Yeah, yeah it should be five. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Too. Um, so it's one of the five patterns um, in which our brain waves usually are shown on an EEG. And in an fMRI, those are the pictures where you kind of see, um, or when you get fMRI pictures uh, and you look at them, you get brain regions which are really active in a certain color. So they are usually colored red when they're yeah, active exactly. and blue when they're inactive. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the pictures in the end, you kind of get an idea of which brain regions were more active during one certain part. Um, coming back to the 
topic of remembering dreams and memory processing and memory formation. I think I've once read a study where it was my most mouse study, so or my study, um, where they had mice running through a maze and measured the brain activity during this um, exercise and also measured the brain activity during sleep. And what they found there was that the mice dreamt um, of, or the, that similar brain regions were active during dreaming as during um, running through the maze. And that after they have dreamt um, of, or after they have had similar brain activation patterns, they were better performing in the main base task. So of course we can't ask the mouse, well, what did you dream last night? That's a bit difficult, but I think this also speaks for the idea that when we dream of something that has happened, we might be better able to recall our memory afterwards. Um, yeah, I also know the study and um, yeah, that's also like a theory um, about dreaming that um, You um, learn uh, during dreams, and you um, you often have a you often dream about a task that you um, did for a long time during mm -hmm. the day. So, for example, if you played a certain computer game for hours during the day, or you try to solve a certain coding problem for hours, it's likely that um, this will appear in your dreams. And so for the mouse, um, it also ran, I don't know, four hours during, uh, through this maze uh, in wake, and then um, it uh, dreamed of, of the maze. But the interesting thing is that uh, we never have a mere replay of the things we did um, during wake, but it's already an abstraction. Um, so, for example, if you played um, Tetris on your computer for hours during the day, Maybe you will dream of the shapes of the blocks, mm -hmm. but I don't know, like in three dimensions or somehow you can't um, control them like you can in a computer game or something like that. Um, and actually like one um, theory about uh, why we dream, which I really like, is the overfitted brain hypothesis. Um, I have to explain overfitting. <laughs> um, so overfitting means um, is a um, term of uh, that comes from machine learning, and it um, means um, when you try to model something, so you have a lot of data points and you try to fit a certain curve to that, that sort of explains the data points. For example, uh, like um, like a parable, you um, have the problem, uh, you can have the problem if you try to fit too many data points, um, you will overfit the data. And if you try to fit the curve to too little data points, you have underfitting. That means uh, that you have either like a curve that is too Uh, details mm -hmm. to for for it to really abstract um, that is overfitting or you have a curve that is uh, has too little detail that is underfitting yes yeah, so when I some other terms overfitting happens um, when you for example present when an algorithm because this comes from machine learning so when an algorithm always only sees red dogs or ginger Let's just say ginger cats. <laughs> Always just sees ginger cats, and then 
the algorithm for some reason learns, okay, cats are always ginger cats. And then when you show it um, a black cat, which was not in the data set it learned the um, pattern from, um, it won't kind of recognize that the black cat is also a cat because it only learned that cats have a ginger colored uh, fur, but kind of assumes that a black cat can't be a cat. Exactly. Very good example. Uh, yeah, and overfitting um, is uh, a real problem because um, you try to, um, yeah, you try to f fit everything and therefore lose the abstraction, lose the bigger picture, so to say. And um, if uh, we um, uh, adapt this to the human brain, um, yeah, the, this um, overfitting brain hypothesis says that especially when we are learning something and we are um, um, dealing with that for hours during the day, we have the danger of overfitting. We have the danger of... Um, Yeah, being too specific um, and sort of not see the big, the big, bigger picture and not be able to generalize mm -hmm. what we learned in order to also adapt this theory to new um, inputs, um, like the black cat in your example. And uh, uh, so this hypothesis says that dreaming um, is exactly so bizarre in nature and so weird and abstract in order to um, reduce overfitting, in order to generalize better what we have learned. And um, I really like this hypothesis. And um, yeah. So kind of when you have only seen as a human being, for example, um, or when a child has only seen ginger cats, because maybe the family has five cats and all have gingered fur, the kid might dream at night that they have a blue cat suddenly. <laughs> so the brain would kind of try to change um, color to just kind of try different um, possibilities, if you yeah, could say that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. And like this, um, yeah, this input that is really like out of place, sort of, that is really bizarre and not fitting to um, exactly what you have done or experienced um, um, is, is a way to um, reduce overfitting and to generalize um, better. Also in machine learning, so like having really sparse uh, input that's, that is um, that's really out there, so, so to say, that is really like not fitting to the general pattern also reduces overfitting. Mm -hmm. um, so that is an interesting analogy. Yeah. yeah. Um, we moved quite a bit into um, um, memory formation in yeah. dreams right now, but that was not the actual topic of your um, bachelor's thesis. Um, you did a study where you first presented the participants with um, pictures. I think they were all quite negative pictures, right? They weren't, was no positive Half of picture. them negative, half of them neutral, okay. actually. Yeah. Uh, what Is a negative picture and what is a neutral picture? <laughs> um, yeah, good question. So I used um, a standardized data set from um, some researchers uh, in Poland. In my specific sample, um, our negative pictures showed like dead animals, car accidents, but not that explicit. So not like, um, I don't know lots of blood and corpses or anything like that. Luckily not, but rather, um, 
yeah, like negative scenes, mm-hmm. um, people that are sad <laughs> or homeless <laughs> or um, are hurt. Um, so quite uh, pictures where everyone can relate and kind of when they see it might with a little empathy be able to uh, kind of make up how a person experiencing this scene might feel. For example, when you have a car crash, that's really troubling yeah. emotionally. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, like the negativity of that picture, so to say, is like w- was like standardized um, by presenting um, these pictures to lots of people, basically, and then assessing um, their emotional reaction. And then you have certain numbers. And of course, that's kind of subjective mm-hmm. because I also like had some pictures where that were not rated that negatively. And I was like, really, oh, that, that's very disturbing to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's individual, but we try to vary the themes, so to say, like the the things that were presented. So we didn't like choose only dead animals, but yes. also other things uh, short question here again was one person only presented one with one picture or with several pictures of the negative kind um yeah we had the pictures transformed into a video so i uh, made videos uh, with 12 pictures each mm-hmm. um and each pic- picture was present for five seconds and then you had 1.5 seconds black screen between the pictures And then the next picture showed up. So um, each video lasted one minute, 18 seconds, I think. And um, we had three negative videos and three neutral okay. videos. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the um, order of the pictures was um, the same in each video. Um, but the order of the videos um, we randomized mm-hmm. between persons but we all always kept um, the order of first having a neutral um, set of pictures then having a negative and then alternating mm-hmm. so always like um, a negative follows a neutral video and so on um, yeah uh, but the specific order was randomized okay and neutral pictures were for example um, <laughs> mainly landscapes actually and also objects like just a plain mark on a table mm-hmm. or a plain chair um yeah but actually mostly landscapes okay yeah and then after the people uh, did the nap what is the thing that you measure the next day or like after the sleep um yeah so we presented them with these pictures before the nap then after the nap again um the pictures were the same but the order was different um, because it was each uh, randomized. And then um, we measured their um, subjective reaction um, with a scale, with the um, SAM, the self-assessment mannequin, <laughs> which just shows like a mannequin um, that is like uh, first for the emotional tone of the picture, it's like has a sad face uh, to happy face on a scale. And for the arousal associated with the emotion, um, it was like uh, from only little arousing to very arousing. So that was like kind of um, shown with uh, something exploding in the chest for really high arousal. That's just <laughs> the picture scale. But uh, many researchers use it because it's nonverbal and mm. easy to use. And 
Um, and then the next days, uh, so actually our experiment spent over three days. And the next two days um, after the experiment, we sent our participants a questionnaire in the evening asking about um, asking about spontaneous memories of the pictures they saw in the experiment, um, their approximate number and duration, and associated emotional reaction with the same scale. Um, so that is how we differentiated short-term reactivity to the pictures um, for before and after the nap, and then long-term, like long-term long emotion processing, uh, with uh, looking at the number, duration, and intensity of the memories of the pictures. And what did you find? <laughs> so um, luckily, I didn't have to do so much statistics. <laughs> Um, also, because we only did a pilot study with 10 participants, so our findings are not st statistically significant either way because it's just a too small sample. And also my supervisor actually did like statistical analysis and um, just uh, to, yeah, just like to see if, if actually something would be significant even. Um, if it's not <laughs> due to the smell sample size, she didn't um, find anything um, really that was really significant. Um, but our most important finding um, was that um, people who didn't have dream recall had um, longer memories of the pictures the next two days. I think that's my main takeaway because, um, yeah, we uh, like also followed a hypothesis which says That, or we followed um, a study quite closely in the design, which found out that people um, that um, sleeping enhances the short-term reactivity to the emotional picture. So, like the um, reaction is actually more negative after sleep or after the nap. Um, but in the long term, people who slept had uh, shorter memories of these pictures. Um, so that kind of suggests that. Um, Uh, sleeping or dreaming and uh, seeing the pictures maybe um, triggers some emotional processing that um, first enhances the negative reaction, but then in the long term um, reduces, uh, yeah, reduces the memory. So you kind of dealt with it mm -hmm. and are then <laughs> like better off in the long run. And uh, actually, like we didn't find the uh, more negative short term reaction. Um, But we did find that people without dream recall had longer and uh, more memories of the pictures. So when you put it in different terms, you could say that after seeing something um, that was emotionally challenging, you first remember it more um, strongly. But when you dream of it, kind of the emotional intensity goes down. Yes, you could say that, yeah. Why do you think that people who could not recall their dreams, not lower the emotional respond, response. Uh, sorry. When people did, you said that when people did not dream about, um, okay. you said when people don't dream um, or they can't remember if they dreamt of the challenging thing, that their response did not go down compared to the people who did dream of it. Or did I misunderstand you? Um. So um, we 
differentiated between dream recall and no dream recall first. So we had like two big groups. Um, and then we had um, a further group division um, with the people who did uh, did recall their dreams into they incorporated stimuli. Um, so they incorporated pictures that were shown during the experiment into their dreams and those who did not. And um, so um, what I just mentioned was that um, there were not that, like the, the difference between like before and after the nap was not that high for any group. In fact, um, we did find that people um, without dream recall actually had like um, a more negative um, reaction both before and after the nap. Mm -hmm. um, but like the relative adaption was um, not that high for any specific group. And um, the people without dream recall, so uh, we don't know like if they dreamt of the simile or not, um, but they just had no dream recall, um, had longer picture memories uh, the next days uh, than the people with dream recall. But uh, the people with dream recall are... Um, there were two that just had some dream not related to the picture and two who actually incorporated um, the stimuli from the experiment into their dream. Okay, yeah. We always try to um, put the episode into the broader, con in the broader context of cognitive science. Um, and from what I've heard uh, so far, I would assume that like maybe the main fields of cognitive science that are concerned with this research should be um, neuroscience and probably psychology. Would you agree to that? Are there more fields yeah. <laughs> that are involved in this? No, I would agree. Yeah. Um, and when people listen to this episode, what or is there any kind of take-home message they should remember? So how would you summarize um, the interview and the whole topic? I would like to uh, people to take away that there is really um, a great potential in dreaming um, for your personal mental health. Um, I mean, there's definitely more research uh, to be done here. And that's maybe also a takeaway. Like if you're interested um, in this kind of research, uh, please go for it or like please spread the word because <laughs> really dreams are not that well researched at all. Um, and um, yeah, I would just say that um, dreams are not like mere, I don't know, side products. That's actually also a theory by some researchers that um, dreaming is uh, just a side product of some other brain processes and that we can't really have or we don't really have a benefit at all from dreaming. But my take is that we do have a benefit um, from dreaming, and that is mainly, yeah, that, I don't know, um, emotions that are gen challenging or experiences that are challenging in our life um, can be seen from a different perspective uh, during dreams and um, are also, like, more abstract during dreams and that probably helps us, helps our emotional life in the long term. And yeah, so pay attention to your dreams. If you would like to dream more, try dream journaling um, in whatever way 
as I said, the success rates are really high. If you really try to um, do that as often as possible, as often as you remember something of your dream, your dream reports will get longer. And um, yeah, I think that's my main takeaway. And also that uh, dream research is not just psychoanalysis mm-hmm. <laughs> because actually like a surprising, surprisingly often when I told people about my research, um, they were immediately like, oh, so you're doing something with dreams. So are you like looking at Freud or something? <laughs> like, are you looking at psychoanalysis? Like what symbols do appear in your dreams and stuff like that? And I was like, really, no, that's actually not what I do at all. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, uh, I mean, dream research is really more than that and also more than just the psychological side of it, but also the neuroscientific side of it. Um, yeah, more researchers are looking at what really happens in your brain, uh, why you dream and how that is, yeah, benefiting your learning processes, um, in general. Thank you very much for your time, for taking us into your topic and into your research and being here today. Sure, yeah. Thank you for having me. Before we roll the credits, we'd like to inform you about the Coxie Space Day. This is an event happening on the 18th of November 2023. On the Coxie Space Day, you can meet us as the makers of the podcast, but also connect to other fellow cognitive science students and alumni. There will be a lot of different booths, fun workshops, and some exciting surprises. The Coxie Space Day will be the perfect spot to get in touch, connect, and find orientation in the whole universe of possibilities in cognitive science. You can register on www.coxiespace.de. That's C O G S C I S P A C E.de. We hope to see you there. When you enjoy listening to us, the best way to support us is by following us on your chosen podcast app. This could either be Google Podcast, Spotify, or Apple Podcast. Another good way to support us is by following our Instagram account which is called kaleidoscience underscore pod. On our Instagram account, you will also get regular information on the next episode. Thanks a lot for supporting us. This was Kaleidoscience, hosted by Elisa Palme and Sönke Löw, produced by Elina Ohnesorge, Elisa Palme, Sönke Löw and Sophie Kühne, produced in collaboration with the Cognitive Science Student Journal. The music was produced by Jan Lukas Schröder. The logo was designed by Annika Richter. Thank you for listening and joining us on our journey through conversations on cognitive science.